Right, so today uh, we want to talk about buzzwords. Some people love them. A lot of people kind of hate them because uh, arguably they can be a little bit too vague <laughs> and uh, yeah, maybe not concrete or valuable enough, but some of them really tap into powerful and relevant things. And to be more specific, uh, well, both you and I, Rob, we have a, we had some experience with a few of them and they're very interesting. And basically I'm talking about now Scrum, I'm talking about design thinking, and I'm talking about growth hacking. So if, uh, if, some, if you've never heard about this before, yeah, we're gonna, the idea today is to really talk about, start with why these buzzwords matter, perhaps more now than ever before, what do they mean, uh, what, when are they valuable, and when they're not valuable, and basically share a little bit of our own experiences with each one of them. So now, let's start with the why. Why does Scrum matter? Why does Agile design thinking matter? I think uh, more than ever before, uh, the marketplace is, has become very complex, but in an exciting way, because now you know, the entry barrier for not every business, but for many types of business has become lower. So if you want to sell, you have an idea, you wanna sell a t-shirt, you have an idea for a service, I mean, up to a certain extent, of course, you can really do things in a way cheaper way than in the past. You have access to the cloud today. It's not too complicated. You don't have to be a programmer to set your own website, to link it to Shopify, to have a product and just put it out there. So in one hand, that's very exciting because more people can do it. You have an idea, you can test it more. But at the same time, because the entry barriers for some industries is lower, that means there's more competition. So in this case, I think arguably more than before, figuring out a way to understand whether your product, your idea is good enough, whether you you're selling to the right people and improving it fast enough becomes more relevant. And of course, these are very big questions. They're very, they're, they were relevant before as they're relevant now, but the question is great. How do I get to it? How do I figure out how, uh, if my product is good enough, if, I have a, if there is a market? And if there is a market, whether there are, I'm selling to the right people. So in this context, I think it's relevant to discuss kind of two topics here. Uh, for people who really don't, haven't read much about like uh, marketing or much about like a lean startup and stuff, uh, just let me try to untangle two concepts. So there's one concept, which is product market fit, which basically means you're selling, say you have a great idea for a new flavor of ice cream, and, and there is a market for that. So that just means you put out a product out there and it solves a problem. It fulfills a need, it adds enough value that some people uh, are willing to purchase it. It doesn't mean necessarily that it's scalable. It doesn't mean that you're gonna become a millionaire. It doesn't even mean that you, can, you have a, a, a high enough margin for it. It just means that up until now, your product or your service adds enough value so that some people within the market are willing to buy it. Another aspect of it, which I find super interesting as well. It's product channel fit. So that's basically, yeah, you, you have some, you, there is an audience for you, but then are you selling to the right people? Is your cost of acquisition too high? Is your customer lifetime value high enough? Are you basically, are you selling to the right people? And maybe, I mean, this, 
perhaps it sounds like it overlaps a bit. You can really debate that with me because of course it's easier to put a product out there if there is an audience for it already in a way. But many times there are different things. And I think that's a challenge for many people, especially with small businesses, because just because you get the first, and that's hard to get the first, of course, otherwise everybody would be a millionaire. It doesn't mean that it's scalable. I think scalability really goes beyond finding a market. It taps into the second part, the product channel fit. I agree. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. We, we, you have those two, two points that you made, and I think we really need to, to try to discuss. Okay, what's the best approach? And I think those three buzzwords, as you call them, will will, will help will help with this in this discussion, because we we live in a world with a lot of buzzwords lately, and uh, some are cool and really useful but some are a bit not uh, maybe you should just not get into them too too deep <laughs> but uh, i think those three that you picked today uh, are really really interesting and i think they really if implemented correctly they can really help you and help a company uh, find solutions for for different problems that we'll, we'll discuss uh, probably in the later points yeah, uh, basically it's hopefully what we, what we try to achieve here is to, yeah, <clears throat> translate some of the buzzwords into relevant aspects. And I mean, you know, we all know so much, of course, feel free to disagree with us. We'd like to put the discussion further and learn more, but that's our experience and our learning so far. But okay, I cover two, we cover two topics, the product market fit, product channel fit, great. What? What, what, where does Scrum fit into the storyline? What is, if anybody, what is Scrum? So basically, Scrum is a framework, and I'm quoting now the Scrum guide from uh, scrum.org, is a framework within which people can address adaptive problems while productively uh, and effectively creating products of the highest possible value. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, sounds great. I would, <laughs> I would basically translate that to is Scrum, and Scrum is like one framework within Agile that came actually from Lean, but that's too much detail for the, for the scope of this uh, episode. Basically, is a, a methodology, a way that you can try to minimize learning loops. You can learn f as fast as possible, whether, going back to what we were talking about before, the product market fit, whether your product adds value enough. That's it because it's hard. We live in a complex world. There, it's a lot of competition, a lot of different ones, a lot of choices. Choice overwhelmment is a real issue. Many times, sounds great on paper, but in reality, can be a challenge. And Scrum is just a one possible framework that tries to guide you, provide you some principles to navigate your way through this complexity and try to learn as fast as possible whether your product adds value. Do you agree with me, Vlad? So far, does yeah. it make sense? Yeah, it, 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 I really, I totally agree with you. Uh, I think um, it really helps you be in the, the, this workflow and this um, kind of have this approach where it's always try to learn fast and improve and don't make a long-term plan that will, w w when you don't know all the details of the problem, let's say, you know, when you try to go into a market or into a, uh, to, to try to develop something for a specific product but you don't know all the details let's say of the uh, of that market so you need to really have this mentality where you adapt really fast and you have to use one of those methodologies to have this ability to make short-term planning tests and then uh, adjust and see uh, if your plan really worked and you many companies 
traditionally try to map everything out before they do a, they, they launch into something and many times they just never never finish that project because they they, they learn so much while trying to implement that project that they they give up you know so i think scrum is really valuable for for companies especially in in the era that we live which everything moves so fast and uh, markets and technology and uh, everything develops so fast and marketing uh, uh, so I think this this methodology is really useful but it's we'll talk later it's not the easiest I think to implement in every in every business yeah as they say themselves like the practitioners and the <clears throat> coaches it's easy, easy enough to understand, but very hard to master. Yeah, and I think maybe agreed. it's nice to give a little more context. So many times people talk about like, what's the opposite of why Scrum interesting is because the two opposite of a spectrum would be like waterfall and waterfall is, for example, you have a, you want to say you want to launch a product and in waterfall, you would like really the one-to-one -one project management. So everybody defines, you sit together, spend ages planning, defining really all the responsibilities, all the features, making the whole plan. And then, you know, you only launch it to market, go to market after it's fully done, so to speak. So that could be like six or nine months, you know, a year. So then, but you only develop, you only figured out in the market, you get a response at the end. That's kind of waterfall, yeah. Uh, yeah. how it works. And Agile is the opposite. You try to break, you don't have the full product straight away, but you try to break it down into the, your hypothesis of value. And now I'm also, it's overlapping with another buzzword, lean startup, but essentially <laughs> it's figuring out, okay, I'm not sure if everybody wants the, the lovely, this awesome software that I made, the full vision that I have, but then how do I break it down into pieces that really uh, represent its value proposition? And how can I quick, as quick as possible and as, you know, as cost-effective as possible, get some feedback from the market and figure out the first concept we were talking about, product market fit. So do people want the software? Do people want the ice cream, the vegan ice cream flavor I made? And then you don't have to spend a whole year making perfect but you make it just good enough that you learn whether you should move further so that's kind of the gist of it now it's beyond the scope of this episode i think to go too deep into what it is but i think it's relevant to go to just describe scrum the some part of it a little bit deeper and of course if you're curious about this if you just google you're going to find a lot of things but i really recommend going to scrum.org they have a lot of cool materials there and some nice certifications but essentially we're talking about scrum basically it's a way to kind of uh speed up learning loops and essentially it it's it consists of three of different of course there's there's a cultural aspect of it of like uh, the values you know the uh, pillars of scrum on a more cultural level but that which is exciting but i think what's a crash course of scrum basically taps into okay what are the roles what are the artifacts in it what are the processes and roles within scrum are kind of threefolded you have a product owner you have a scrum master you have the development team the product owner is, according to the Scrum Manifest, like the value maximizer. So he's not a project manager, but basically he's kind of the spider in the web. He tries to represent, he has a product vision, has a vision of what the product should be, and he represents the interest and he tries to navigate his way through both the people building the product and the managers. The Scrum Master, you can get a certification in that, is an expert in Scrum itself. So he really, or she or he, really understands the ins and outs of the meetings or how it's tackled, the, the, the challenges, and they facilitate discussions and the development team can be programmers, but ideally should be a multidisciplinary team of the, from between three and nine people at most uh, of like program backend, front-end, designer, marketing, what have you. Ideally should be uh, multidisciplinary. So those are like kind of the key roles. 
in terms of um, uh, uh, also artifacts, you have, of course, um, the product backlog, which is basically like a list of all the features that represent the, the vision you have of the product. And per sprint, uh, the, the parts of these uh, features of, okay, that we can call them also user stories are selected saying because of the vision of the product owner, the interest of the managers and the, what you've learned before, you choose specifically items from the product backlog to put into sprint backlog and to be done during the sprint. And then there's also for some part the Kanban board, which is basically like a visual management tool that shows, okay, what do we have to do? What is in progress? And then you can kind of keep track of how many things are being done at the same time and whether that's feasible or not and what has been done to create more transparency. And last part, before I go too deep into this and bore everybody, again, just go to scrum.org if you find this interesting, is the events. So basically you have a daily standup that should last at most 15 minutes uh, where you know this, the development team should have every day of the sprint to discuss, you know, it can be basically anything but the suggestion from the Scrum manifest is like talk about what have you done, what did you do yesterday, what are you gonna do today and to help fulfill the, achieve the sprint goal. And if you need, if you have seen issues and impediments, then there's sprint planning when you decide, again, the whole thing going from moving from product backlog to sprint backlog and figuring out what has to be done. Sprint review when you analyze what has been produced, the increment, so the version of the ice cream that you kind of came up with or the version of your software that hopefully you went to market and already got some feedback from. And after that, and that's the last part, and then I'll stop with a deep dive, is the retrospective, which unlike the sprint review where you talk about really the content and how the software the increments uh, played out and the, what the feedback was the learnings it's more about a, a kind of inwards look into the way of working and so how did the sprint go in terms of relationships in terms of the uh, of the agile principles you know of the mood so to speak i mean maybe that sounds a lot but what i think it's cool here and what this what adds value is not so much again that you're or you learn faster about the market and uh, and whether your product has value but by following this, you also have to actively think more about how you co-work with uh, your colleagues. You know, the process, the meetings, did it go well? Were they on time? Were people high energy? Were they low energy? Why? Could you? And I think this, maybe this sounds like an overcue at first, but honestly, for team dynamics, doing this, it takes time, but it can bring a lot of benefits. Uh, now. Having said that, sounds great probably so far. It's like, okay, yeah, learn, minimizing learning loops. I want to learn more. I want to improve my team dynamics. But how come this is not everywhere? How come you don't have agile teams? You don't have Scrum for every single company if it's so great? Well, because, of course, it's not a bulletproof solution, right? Because like I think what Vlad even mentioned at the beginning, um, the this is really relevant for search for adaptive problems for things when you don't when there's a lot of uncertainty so it's a way to kind of de-risk your investigation your exploration of uh, whether your product has value if there's a market for your product you know but i think regardless of what maybe what you read even on the scrum guide i think it's not fit for everything right so for example because a product has a life cycle right you 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 first you're, you're not sure whether there's a market for it and then, you know, there is this whole exploration part. You can create an increment, you create an MVP, and you test things out. But there are many, you know, uh, jobs or there are many parts of company work which has a different kind of life cycle than a product. That is, for example, if you think about uh, HR, you could be agile with HR, but the nature of work within HR is different, right? 
you don't build an increment. You have to focus on certain things like uh, some metrics related to how long it takes for you to find a candidate or the feedback that they get. So you can apply, but it's not a perfect fit because you're not figuring out a new market for it. Same thing goes, perhaps even a better example for compliance issues. You know, compliance, you know, it's very structured, it's very defined, very defined life cycle. And it's not, it not, it, you're not going to necessarily reinvent the wheel or add another value by f- having people with a compliance background to, you know, be, have scrum masters, have a, <laughs> have a product owner, you know. And I say this from experience, you know, sometimes people get frustrated. It doesn't, they don't see the value and sometimes it, it's not a good fit. Yeah, I totally but, agree. I totally agree. I think scrum is not, uh, at least in the form that, it's now it doesn't fit any uh, all the all the areas of a company but the the good part is that you can really it can be really useful if you implement it in just some areas of the company or maybe sometimes do longer cycles and try to implement it on certain matters in a certain department you know like let's say hr maybe they just want to test some uh, some features that will make their workplace uh, more uh, will give will motivate employees to work more efficiently or will be more attractive for the market for the job market you know so they could test those out and try to adjust you know and uh, adjust their their process and also try to in a way kind of innovate in that sense and try to come up with new 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 solutions but uh, uh, yeah, it, it it's not suited for all all the areas in a company, and I think many companies, uh, when they first see it, I think historically you can find uh, you can find research they they were trying to maybe do all, too much at once. You know, they they weren't taking it step by step. They were trying to try to make an agile company with all all like all of it, and I think that's a, it's a big mistake because you can't really do that. It's hard. It's very time consuming and uh, I think also you need to work in as you said in smaller teams when you when you do this and I think uh, if you try to do it on a company that has already very big departments it's a bit hard to implement because it, it interferes with their the, the current workflow a bit too much you know and if they don't need it they they will struggle with it and it will just be a waste of time I think yeah, I, I yes, absolutely. And I think what you're describing here a bit is actually what many people, myself included, many times uh, underestimate when it comes down to, you know, trying to implement change and what have you is just like culture, but beyond that status quo bias, which is a complete, it's a human nature thing, right? Because yeah, yeah. it's safe to, if, if you've done things for a certain while and it works it takes more effort and energy to consider another way. And I think many times for big companies, if you want to change, if they're used to waterfall and they've been doing this for many years, it's tough. So tough for two things. First, because of the whole status quo bias, but also tough because as we mentioned before, it's not a bulletproof solution for everything. You need to really think it right uh, about where it fits, where it does and how you sell it, how do you do interventions? And that's where, um, you know, the whole role of a Scrum Master. It's a role, to be honest, within Scrum, I think the coolest roles are more to be in the development team or the product owner, but the Scrum Master adds a lot of value because it's not just about facilitating discussions. It's about collaborating with other Scrum Masters and doing interventions and bringing the discussion, say, hey, for this context, how can we be more agile? How can we learn faster? How can we add more value? Uh, but tapping to the second point you, you brought, which was uh, 
the governance aspect. I mean, there there's also SAFE, which is one of the frameworks that try to scale Agile, but that also, I mean, that's beyond the scope of this episode, but that's also a big challenge, right? To scale it up, but essentially you start small, even with a, like with the whole concept of Agile, you don't go big, you go for MVP, and that's the same thing with Agile. You don't just go for SAFE. You try in small iterations, and then you uh, expand it, and you try to scale it up. Um, now, we covered, we said we're gonna talk about three buzzwords, we talked about uh, Scrum, we talked, uh, uh, now I think the second one that's interesting and I think people might see the definition a bit of an overlap is uh, design thinking. And I, I would bet most people have at least heard of it. It's becoming really popular, I would say. But what, what is design thinking? Uh, yeah, similar-ish to Agile, it, it's uh, to Scrum. It's a, an iterative process in which you try to learn, basically. But the, the big difference is that with design thinking, you really try to keep the client central. So you try to really challenge assumptions, you try to redefine problems in a way to come up with alternative solutions or strategies. And one thing that's very unique about design thinking as well is that it focuses not just on finding, per se, product market fit, like we were talking about at the beginning, it's about what's, I think, the textbook definition like a wicked problem and a wicked problem is like a multifaceted problem. So for example, uh, if you want to figure out how to make a, a process more cost effective, that's more of an optimization problem. So that's like, there's not many unknowns in this, but if you want instead to figure out a way to say, empower all the companies, oh, sorry, not the companies, all your colleagues, everyone in your company to be more sustainable that's more of a wicked problem because it taps into a lot of variables it's not clear it's not easily scoped so design thinking is a good tool for that because it borrows some design tools for, uh, such as uh, you know empathy building such as personas so that you really from the very beginning you know you try to first of all try to define the the, the wicked problem make sure it's a wicked problem it's not an optimization problem so for example i want to empower people or my coworkers to be more sustainable and with that, you try to you know, anchor that with a persona of a client. So who is the persona? What do they think? How do they feel? What is their age? What are the concerns? What are the dreams? And once you do that, there's a lot of material that online we have to go too deep into this, but essentially you go from identifying this wicked problem towards really building empathy, figuring out who the client is, and not just like thinking out loud and having discussions, but ideally finding sources, go to blogs, hopefully talk to people who kind of fit into your persona, you know? And if you and if you do that, then you kind of can build this other uh, another tiny buzzword in the middle of this, which is like a customer journey, a journey, so to speak, to see how how is the current situation. And with that, you can identify some pain points, you can identify some points of improvement, and given those things, so that you know who you're focusing on, who's the client, how do they experience the wicked problem right now, how do they experience their journey so far, you can with hopefully multidisciplinary and diverse teams ideate ideas. You know, then we can, we can have a whole podcast just talking about different ways you can ideate and select ideas, but essentially like Agile, once you have those ideas, you kind of prototype and you try to, in small iterations, build and proof of concepts so you can test them. And with proof of concept here, because many times people talk about MVP, talk about proof of, in my experience, like POC, proof of concept is something even like more high level than MVP. MVP for me many times sounds like there's some code in it, but a proof of concept could be just a wireframe, so clickable screens. Yeah, agree. 
uh, yeah, and do uh, what we've had experience I, together with design thinking before. <laughs> yeah, I, the project. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think it's a very good uh, if if implemented to the right thing. I think it's a really good uh, a good way of approaching uh, uh, a problem out, really outside the box, you know. But I think the the why why are you doing this i think it's really really important to define that in the beginning so why why do you want to do this to something why are you trying to do this i think uh, because we're doing this discussion for people maybe who try to understand a bit why what 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 is this they hear those buzzwords and they're trying to see okay maybe it works in my company you know maybe it works in my organization in my department but i think they need to maybe uh, not try to define why 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 do they want to do this you know try to define the problem and to really see if that fits with with the framework you know because uh, I think if you have a good why then you can really really find really cool solutions using using uh, 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 using uh, design thinking you know because it it has some challenges it has its challenges but uh, um, overall I think. Uh, uh, we have uh, some cool experiences. We we find found some cool solutions to, uh, let's say, uh, areas for so or domains that we never thought we'll we'll go into and uh, try mm -hmm. to in innovate in that. But uh, I think what what I wanted to point out is more like uh, for for maybe the audience who's trying to to figure out okay would this be something good for me. To try to to define in advance their their why are they trying to and to scope it really well, you know, because I think we had this problem as well that the scoping was a bit off when we tried to do it, and uh, then we try to rescope it kind of on on the way and to reduce a bit the. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I, the, the ideation part was a bit too wild maybe and then <laughs> yes we rescoped it you know so maybe if we yes. had a, a bit better scoping in the beginning with we, we we would have all those good ideas but in the the, the scope straight away not, not yeah <laughs> uh yeah i agree with you totally but uh but i think it's part of it because of course whenever you try something new there is a learning phase and i think the scoping issue is really broader than the context of uh, innovation product magic scoping is a, it's a challenge for yeah other areas as well it's always because okay. you know like again the work is complex the world is complex people have different agendas different understandings there's miscommunication so scoping is ongoing but having said that i i agree with you in fact just to be consistent how in our discussion we we previously talked about agile we talked about why it's good what it means and what are the problems and i think you nailed one of the biggest pitfalls of design thinking, which is basically problem solution fits, that it's not like agile, it's not a silver bullet. It doesn't work, but more so than agile, I think design thinking if, if used for a more optimization problem, so to speak, it really doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. add so much value. So that, that part is definitely a pitfall. Another pitfall is actually lack of diversity with design thinking. And when I say diversity here, I just, I, I mean many levels. On one level is, idea diversity of ideas because that's super important so and to do that you need to actually create an environment where it's okay to have some crazy ideas it's okay to you know say something silly you need to have this kind of psychological safety 
so that people can really kind of open up and try new things because the point of design thing is to try to come up with out of the box solutions. So if you don't have an environment where that's okay to do, you're not gonna get many ideas and you might as well not do design thinking. So on the idea level, that's a challenge, but also in terms of people, because diversity is essential for design thinking because you're trying to come up with something out of the box new for a multifaceted problem. You're not trying to figure out how to build a cheaper bridge. And to do that, of course, it's, it's helpful if, to have an expert from a domain. So if you are doing like we did, we, we, we did an assignment for a multinational in animal feed, of course it helps to have somebody who has a background in that, who has some domain knowledge, of course. But it is also essential to have people who really have different points of view, who have like different background, educational backgrounds, have somebody who knows data, somebody who is a UXer, somebody who can program. But beyond that, diversity of gender, diversity of nationality, diversity of age, of life experience. I think in our project, when we did it, actually, it was really intense and learned a lot. But what I really liked was the fact that we truly had a multinational team. You know, people, we had a colleague from Syria, a colleague from Germany, a Dutch colleague, you're from Romania, I'm from Brazil. So it was very, that part I really appreciated. And I did see that reflect into the ideas. Because if it had been just people from one background, from one country, you don't get it you don't get the diversity that isn't essential to actually find out the golden ticket that might actually be good. Now, maybe, the last- Maybe, yes, maybe sorry. sorry, maybe because maybe we make it sound a bit too, too complicated to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> I think, the, I think the, the diversity part is really important, but to be honest, uh, I don't think a lot of companies have the opportunity to, to really, uh, use such a diverse group you know maybe when when implementing a project yeah maybe the, if they use a consulting firm and they really try to 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 create a team that's diverse but let's say if they do it internally maybe they don't have the 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 the, the diversity but i think it's important to have uh exterior uh, an exterior uh object like uh, an exterior opinion you know like somebody that doesn't really work with that in that area all the time you know because they you have a bit you're a bit you have already a, you're a bit biased you know like if you work yes. with that and we face that a lot like people really don't like change in an area or they don't like this ideation part or they don't trust the process it's if, uncomfortable yeah it's uncomfortable if they hit if they work with that every day you know so i think it's important at least if you ha can't have that the diverse group at least have a group that is not part of that uh, area that you're trying to, to to tackle at least not from that maybe department that i don't know uh, try to have somebody from the from the exterior because uh, i think we had the perfect conditions to be honest when we were doing it to with with uh, people from different backgrounds different professions different cultures everything but i'm i i think and there there's a there are quite a few examples people don't always have the 
this optimum environment when when trying no, to that, that's yeah. a very no that's a very fair point so then let me anchor because that's the ideal but i know yeah. you know ideal means it's utopic yeah, I, I, I think at least yeah the least you can do is try to get people that are not really working with it every day to get exactly so then let's let's rescope that so yeah. like you said one thing that adds value is if you're having these sessions you're thinking about having a workshop in this in your company yeah make sure that you add in the teams people from different departments that's something you can do you don't need to outsource that just yeah, make sure yeah. they, but i but also by diversity i said okay age matters you know it had to have this different life experience but also many times what i think would also be a no-brainer in this context if you want to do it in-house get someone who frequently touches base with the client most companies have you have somebody in the whether it's call center uh, front office I, I don't know it doesn't matter just someone who on a day-to-day -day basis basically has to talk to the client i think that's essential to have in these kind of sessions and then perhaps you get somebody from accounting somebody that talks to the client somebody who has you know just maybe it person but you every company has some sort of diversity you don't have to maybe also i gotta be too carried away you don't need to sell it to start hiring people from you know from brazil maybe you should i would love if you did that just hire brazilians but essentially everybody there is a diversity in every company and you can tap into that talent yeah now uh check so very last buzzword that we're going to cover because we got a bit excited and it went already we <laughs> went over the time uh we talked about scrum we talked about design thinking and for those who listened you probably saw okay there's some overlap between those things hopefully you got some value out of this discussion so far but another buzzword that we love or i love anyway i'm not sure about i'm speaking for right now is uh growth hacking and for some places, because of the, the, the connotations of hacking, they change it to growth marketing. But okay, what is, what is it? Why does it matter in this context? So this steps more into the second uh, topic. We started the conversation. So not product market fit per se, but product channel fit actually as well. But essentially growth hacking is like the approach within marketing where you do a rapid iter uh, experimentation throughout the entire marketing funnel. So for people who have no idea what I'm talking about when I say marketing funnel is the, like the pirate fund, the one-on-one -on -one marketing funnel that for every, most companies, private companies, they have, you know, they have different products, different customer journeys, but they have a similar marketing funnel that they should have. So basically, whether you sell ice cream or whether you sell software, you probably have a website that some people can go in there. They can become aware of your brands based on which digital channel they're in. Maybe they're on Facebook, maybe they're on Instagram, that they go to your store or they go to your to your website then hopefully they stay a bit so they don't just bounce that's where bounce rate comes from people just in five seconds they're off and then they do something they activate they fill a form for a demo for your software with a newsletter or they order ice cream via your website but essentially if you just google that pirate funnel you're going to find all the steps and why is this interesting because many times until i think fairly recently the approach within marketing experimentation and such really was kind of like focusing just on one thing so just one channel or you know and forgetting about the others or just focusing on acquisition just focus on awareness and growth hacking really tries to tap into the entire thing continuously and the link it has with the other methodologies is that like design thinking if you want to do it you need to have a person you need to have it clear on your mind who's the customer and maybe even more important who are the customers of most value and what does it have to do with also uh, scrum because ideally as well we're talking about development in the beginning you should have growth teams they're multidisciplinary and they have this hypothesis thinking okay if for super simple if the website was blue instead of white for demographic w 
they are going to click more for, they're going to request more demos. I have no idea why, I just have this hypothesis. So that's kind of the overlap it has. But as you might have imagined, I'm talking a lot about marketing funnels, I'm talking about awareness. So this steps more into the scalability part. So you already have a market, and then it's really more the channel. Which channels make more sense, and how can we, as quickly as possible, learn what works and what doesn't, and whether we're selling or targeting the people who, you know, are most valuable to us, the people who value our, 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 um, product the most and i mean that's the kind of one-on definition if you guys google this they're going beyond that the you can even like within growth hacking they're like there's also a, a bigger focus on loops growth loops so to speak so to be specific for example you're buying something on a on a e-commerce retailer and just before you're about to pay they say hey by the way if you were to share that you're purchasing these items on your facebook on your twitter you get a discount of i don't know two percent so sounds like sounds simple enough, but actually this steps a little bit into creating loops that, oh, it's fun to buy. I get, if, you know, if, if it's optimized, I get the product that I want, I get a suggestion. And just before I buy, I have the, I motivated my, my behavior, my behavior is nudged towards sharing that. So towards sharing towards referral. So that's kind of like the later stage of this when you're really thinking about almost behavioral design and how can I not just get people to buy stuff, but to become ambassador. So it gets pretty exciting. You can go deeper in this. But again, this is exciting. Why? because it taps into what I find arguably is the toughest part, which is the scalability. Uh, Vlad, does it make sense so far what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I see you're really excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> I am, it's really, it's really cool stuff, man. Yeah, uh, I, uh, yeah I, I totally agree with you. And I think, yeah, the scalability is, I think this, the, the growth, the, the growth hacking uh, and uh, <clears throat> the growth loops that you're talking about, I think they're really cool for maybe startups and smaller companies or uh, maybe when launching a newer product. But I think the biggest challenge would be to, to do it on a large scale on a bigger company, maybe who already has a really established product or who, who has like a, um, who, who's basically not trying to, to, to gain market share that much right now, because I think it, historically growth hacking really helps some companies to gain visibility and market share fast through some really really clever ways of implementing in implementing correct me if i'm wrong but uh, I no that that's a very yeah. good point i think yeah yeah i think i think yeah that's the biggest challenge and uh, uh, yeah we 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 have some examples i think you prepared for yeah, but I, we have, but I mean, honestly, if, if growth hack is interesting to you, just, you're going to find a lot of examples, a very basic one, and that's an old one, so to speak, is, was, a, I think it was an Outlook example where when it became free email, when email wasn't such a big thing, that whenever you sent an email to someone that it didn't have an Outlook, like there would be like a link at the bottom, just basically highlighting, hey, by the way, you can, yeah. you can download this for free. Super simple. It was new back then, but essentially that kind of tried to, like you said, why, why is it, why is it hacking growth? Because you're just building upon behavior from your existing client base and making it easier, lowering friction for other people to try out your product. But as an example, what I think what's most to kind of almost round it up, like to be consistent again. So what we talk about, why it's exciting, why clearly I'm excited about this, but the challenge I, I think also is what you said is culture again, but also for companies that are more established and more mature. I mean, I think the, the growth hacking just the name by itself it's it's i don't think it represents ex, it's it sounds more 
dangerous or hacking that it's just about okay how do i again uh speed up learning so that i figured out which channels are most interesting how do i figure out that's important for for example your pricing strategy which is something that you know is relevant whether you're a startup a scale up or a bigger company am i selling i have a market but am i selling at the right price am i selling it for the right people and i think the principles of it the whole point of like experimenting across the funnel i think it's super relevant for bigger companies i'm not saying it's easy to do it especially because if let's to, to scope and make it concrete product management like for for a company a multi-million company i mean they have products that work and if they're a bit like old school i mean this they it of course it might be a little bit scary because it's new with the idea of like doing experiment changing what works already but you don't have to change the whole product just about the channels and i think these principles they can be applied and it can add value to the to any company of any maturity but now uh just to round it up we talked about uh our our favorite buzzwords we covered a little bit what they are and we talked about uh their limitations and pitfalls i think the key takeaway here is that you know like at the beginning we we're saying the the market landscape is becoming you know it's it's very complex but it's also very exciting and full of possibilities and there are many honestly free materials out free free content out there about methodologies and things that work if you just google design thinking if you google growth hacking if you google you know go to scrum.org there's so much that you can learn and try to see okay how how can i apply this to my company so the material is there and again the challenge and i think that's the common thing the common trend for all three of those methodologies is the other part like it's at the beginning to figure out the product the fine product market fit it's it's not perhaps too complex but the scaling up part to seeing how do i do it at scale in my company how i have product market fits how do i make sure that the, it's a sustainable business model that's of course the trickier parts and i think just implementing these methodologies by themselves is not going to lead you to that